Welcome to the On Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we've got our usual format for you today with a news roundup to kick things off, starting with a review of the announcement of the conclusion of Samsung's Note 7 recall investigation. We'll then move on to earnings from Samsung and LG that were both announced in the last couple of days. And then our third news roundup topic will be all the preparations that Snap, formerly known as Snapchat, seems to be making for its IPO which is expected to happen in the next few months here. We'll then move on to our question of the week. And the question of the week this time around, which Aaron will be leading for us, is are the recent departures at Apple, uh, meaning staff departures, a sign of trouble? So should we be reading anything into the several recent announcements about people leaving Apple for jobs elsewhere? And then our third segment, we'll do a continuation of our earnings preview from last week. We'll cover... Uh, four additional companies if we have time that will be Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Twitter. So we'll do a brief brief roundup of what we expect to see from earnings from those companies over the next couple of weeks and then uh, we'll wrap up as usual with a weekly pip. So let's get kicked off with our news roundup. Uh, Aaron, have you sort of had a chance to read about or watch any of the Samsung press conference from it was Sunday night our time so I didn't watch it live, I watched it Monday morning but uh, did you did you read about any of that? Did you have any thoughts off the back of all of that? Yeah, I didn't read any of the. Or sorry, I didn't watch um, the, any of the announcement, but I did get to read about it a bit. I, 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 I mean, I, I guess what stood out to me is there wasn't any really surprising information. I mean, it was good that they that they could announce with confidence that they had their arms around the problem. Um, but I think the funny thing is, is that the dust by this point has mostly settled, and uh, and I think. You know, whatever brand damage has long been done, and I don't. It didn't. I guess the point is, I think, I didn't think there was any rehabilitation to do anymore. I think people have just mm. kind of figured, oh, Samsung's not going to make this mistake again because it'd be crazy if they did. Does that make right. sense? And so, yeah, yeah, it does. So, getting the details out there was just sort of like, yeah, this is how this is supposed to go, but it didn't seem like a trajectory shift in in Samsung's fortunes that they did this. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean. This took a long time to finally be released, but you know, to your point, in some ways, everything's died down around it already, and so this was sort of the coda to something that's felt like it's been done for a while now. Uh, it was interesting that the the head of the U.S. CPSC, so the the U.S. regulatory body that oversees recalls, issued a statement this week in which he said, you know, Samsung and the carriers had done great work. This is one of the most effective recalls he'd ever seen. Uh, you know, the 96, 97% return rate on devices was sort of unprecedented for this kind of thing. And so, you know, he, he basically uh, praised Samsung and the carrier partners for a good paragraph of his statement and then spent the next three paragraphs complaining about not having enough budget to do his own investigation uh, properly and, and sort of talked about all the staff that Samsung had thrown at it. Um, yeah, I thought that the announcement from Samsung itself was was thorough. I thought the fact that they included these three outside bodies in the investigation was a very good thing. You know, that gives it more credibility, I think. Uh, the fact that there was some consistency in the findings of those bodies um, was also good. And, you know, they identified these two specific issues. It does, I don't want to say it strains credulity. I think they're telling the truth. But it is pretty amazing that they were two separate battery issues. Um, and they kind of downplayed their own design problems, which seem to have, to some extent, contributed to both of those. I think they also downplayed the fact that, you know, decent quality control should have caught both of these things, you know, that ultimately the battery manufacturers produce subpar products that behaved badly, and these outside bodies were able to recreate the conditions under which the fires happened pretty easily. And so it makes you wonder to what extent 
uh, the quality control was was shoddy there and and in the rush to get the product out the door so you know although i thought that the press conference was very thorough i felt it did kind of skip over samsung's role in it somewhat they were somewhat apologetic and did allude briefly to some design things but you know what they didn't talk about you know they talked a lot about new battery testing procedures they didn't talk at all about changing the culture or about approaching future devices differently from a cultural perspective and so you know, in some ways you wouldn't expect them to talk about that, but that's the big missing piece here. And I think that's the part that we'll have to watch going forward as to kind of how Samsung approaches this kind of thing going forward. Well, and I think, I mean, there's another thing that's important in the context of all of the, and we did that question of the week, you know, back in September about Samsung, about recalls generally and sort of, mm -hmm. you know, what, what you need to do in a recall in order to pull it off. Samsung did most of it. And so I think that's why we're seeing... The dust settle. I, if I were to give them a letter grade, I would give them a B. Mm -hmm. You know, um, they did a lot of things right. Like you said, they didn't exactly go above and beyond. I mean, this isn't like a Tylenol recall where, where Johnson and Johnson completely changed the way over-the-counter medicine is packaged, right? Um, and that would have been great. But by the same token, Johnson and Johnson had actual deaths on their hands. Right. Mm -hmm. There were no great tragedies that came out of Note Seven explosions. I mean, there were mm -hmm. definitely injuries. There's property damage, I and mean, I don't yeah. want to trivialize any of that. But, but we didn't have you know seven unexplained deaths like right. in the Tylenol right. recall. And so, yeah, yeah. so the urgency for Samsung to create industry change wasn't nearly as high. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they didn't really in the end with this. Um, despite you know some some hinting that the, that they intended to um you know I, I don't think it's that surprising right right makes sense yeah well let's move on to sort of related topic which is samsung and lg's earnings that came out this week uh, samsung had previewed its earnings as it usually does a couple of weeks back uh, but released the sort of full version uh, this week and then lg released its earnings as well this week um, obviously smartphones uh, what those two have in common other than being korean companies and uh, interesting to see, you know, LG's negative trend kind of continuing. Uh, their smartphone shipments continue to kind of trend down over time, and then they continue to be pretty heavily loss-making for them as well. And that doesn't really show much signs of change. Um, Samsung's smartphone business performed pretty well, given the context of everything we've just been talking about. Um, but, you know, still well down on several years ago, both in terms of shipments and revenues and then profits as well. So, you know, they're in their new normal to some extent, but seem to have bounced back pretty quickly. Um, some evidence that they sold quite a few Galaxy S phones to people that would have otherwise bought Note phones. So that's a good sign for them as well. Um, the real star of the Samsung earnings was the chip business, um, which you know went through a bit of a dip for a, a few quarters there, and in the last couple of quarters really recovered very nicely. And it seems to be in large part about um, very high demand relative to the supply and therefore rising prices and so on. So their margins on the chip business have been very high. Um, I think it's only about a quarter of their revenue, but it's over half of their profits now comes from the chip business. So that's a very important business for them. Also a very useful hedge against uh, any future downturn in their smartphone business as well. Yeah, I, you know, there's going to be more and more stuff that Samsung chips can go into as time goes on. And uh, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I, th I think it is a great hedge. and. And they are world class for a reason, and so I don't think we should be too terribly surprised that they're maintaining that well. I think right. I was more surprised that their that their smartphone um, business didn't get hurt more by the Note Seven recall. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, that's just an indicator of the fact that they built a pretty strong brand up to 
you know, the battery explosions. Yeah. And so yeah. they weathered it pretty well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. I, I think uh, the other interesting thing is, you know, they took a lot of the hit last quarter. They kind of basically right. took all the revenue and profit hit in the third quarter. And so the fourth quarter is actually relatively free other than missing a bunch of sales that might have happened otherwise. And, you know, the revenues could have been higher there. But, you know, from a profit perspective, they took most of the hit in Q3. And so kind of cleaned the slate and then moved on to a much better quarter in Q4. Um, let's talk then in, in our third news roundup topic about Snap, formerly known as Snapchat, and the fact that it seems to be planning for an IPO at the moment. Um, there have been a whole range of stories over the last few weeks, um, most of them sort of coming out of sourced reporting rather than directly from Snapchat. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has done a particularly good job of kind of reporting on some of this stuff, but really around all the things that are changing at Snap as it prepares for an IPO, uh, and that ranges from um, you know, doing a roadshow to promote the IPO and some of the things they've emphasized there. So, for example, they've tried to emphasize they're more like Facebook than Twitter. And um, obviously, they've seen what's happened to Twitter recently, want to avoid the perception that this is going to be the same sort of thing. Um, talking up engagement, which, you know, Twitter's never been very good at talking about engagement and how much time people spend in the app and so on. Um, lots of advertising centric efforts, so more targeting, more offline data being used to help target advertising, more ROI and analytics type stuff being built to, to create a more sort of serious ad business there, um, trying to get commitments from uh, some of the big media buyers uh, to spend more money this year than they did last year on Snapchat. You know, all that kind of stuff has been happening. All sort of signs that Snapchat's in some ways maturing as an app, that Snap's maturing as a company and having to make some changes, frankly, uh, ahead of an IPO. So they also clamped down on some content stuff that's been going on in, in the Discover tab as well around the sort of stories that come from third parties. Um, so interesting to kind of see some of these changes. Do you have any thoughts on all of that, Aaron? It, the maturing seemed like an inevitable arc here, and that's mm -hmm. been Snapchat's. That's been Snapchat from the very start. I mean, if you look at the ephemeral messaging and kind of where that started, it it was very yeah. juvenile is the word that comes to mind. But I'm not even sure that's the best word to describe how it was not the sort of thing that that you know most adults wanted to be a part of or had a reason to be a part of. Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, if, you, if you're going to grow, you have to appeal to a broader audience. And Facebook went through a similar maturing process, um, you know, and, uh, and got really, really big because they did it well. And I think it's smart that, that Snap is moving this direction. I, I, I think the, the IPO, when it does hit, is going to be big. I don't think it's going to be big as Facebook, but primarily just because it wasn't because Snap's not first at this, right? They're not the first. They're they're not. When Facebook IPO'd, it was, it was notably unique, and I think people are going to see this as. I think they'll be talking about is is this a next Facebook kind of thing, which already I think will dampen the size and 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 especially the buzz and media around, the IPO. I think this sort of fits expectations more. But that said, I do think it's going to be really big. I I'm based on the last year and especially some of your coverage of Snap during our podcast, I'm very bullish on, uh, on Snap. And that's not obviously investment advice, but I just think as, as a company, I'm bullish on their future. I, th I think they have a lot of room to do cool things. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very curious to see how that, that goes over the next few months. I'm particularly keen to get my hands on the data that will be in the S1 filing when that finally goes public. You know, it's always fascinating to dig into the financials right. of a company that's been private up until this point. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And as I said at the beginning, uh, the question is, are the recent departures at Apple a sign of trouble? And this has certainly been a theme that's been emerging that all the uh, people leaving Apple to go work elsewhere are a sign that somehow things have gone wrong at Apple um, in the culture, in the sort of people's perceptions of where the company's headed, you know, something else. So we're going to dig into that quite a bit. Aaron's really been looking both at the recent departures themselves and also at some of the history of executive departures at Apple by way of context for all of this. So I'll be asking Aaron a series of questions that relate to that overarching question. We're going to try to get to the bottom of this a little bit for all of you today. So let's start, Aaron, with just giving some background in terms of who's actually been leaving recently. So what kinds of departures are we talking about here? Sure. I'm, I'm going to kind of group them together by sort of their, their, their specialty. Um, the, 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 most, the most notable one, um, hands down, is Chris Latner. Um, he was the, I mean, I hesitate to call him the inventor of Swift, the, the, the new programming language that Apple is, is, is using and encouraging all of his developers to use. He was also uh, the developer of a really important software compiler um, that's widely used, um, incredibly talented. Um, he left to Tesla and is now the director of their autopilot, uh, software. So essentially the self-driving software, which we talked about a lot last week. Um, this is, uh, Chris Latner is going to be heading this up at Tesla. Um, it's a huge change. This is a weird change. In fact, if you think about it, like it's not clear why somebody who, has experience in, in developer tools is now going to all of a sudden um, have a bunch of expertise when it comes to self-driving vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, the, the general consensus or perception of Chris Latner is that uh, he's he is extremely talented, very innovative, creative. Um, and, and that's why the loss stands out so much at Apple, um, because he was so well-respected and well-liked. Um, it, what's interesting is that, so Mac Rumors uh, it had a great scoop during all of this. They actually had a, a communication with Chris Latner because there's all this speculation is about why he was leaving if there was internal fighting or other conflict. And and really, he just, he explained to Mac Rumors essentially that he's just excited to try something new. He's been develop mm -hmm. He's been a developer for 30 years. He's been doing developer tools for 16. And this opportunity at Tesla was just one of a kind. It was a chance to go do something new and exciting. Um, and uh, creating a programming language, programming language, especially one that's robust and modern, is no small task. And mm -hmm. so I think that's why Tesla could have the confidence that he could do something similarly significant in the self-driving vehicle space. I think the interesting question to ask as, as you think about Chris Latner is, why didn't he have the same opportunity at Apple with Project mm -hmm. Titan? Right? Why, why, wasn't, why couldn't he just make a lateral move at Apple yeah, and head up their self-driving software efforts there. I think that's that's a that's a big question we we don't know the answer to because Project Titan is so secretive. Yeah, one one aspect of that, I guess he he did this podcast interview as well that um, where he spoke for a long time about lots of different stuff. Didn't mostly talk about why he left Apple for Tesla, but there were some hints in there. I felt like I've listened to some of it, but not all of it yet. And um, one of the things he referred to in in what was great about working at Apple was working on products that A, actually ship, B, ship in large enough numbers that they actually reach real people in the real world. And 
Um, you know, working on Project Titan at Apple would mean maybe it would ship eventually and, and maybe sort of lack of clarity about where Titan's going at Apple was sort of part of this picture too, but not knowing perhaps exactly when, if ever, Apple might ship something around autonomous driving, whereas at Tesla you could work on something that's actually being put into cars today and being used by real people. And so he didn't ever say that explicitly, but I do wonder if that was part of the the reasoning, just that the relative maturity of the autonomous driving program at Tesla relative to you know, Project Titan at Apple. Which I think tells us a lot about Project Titan and mm-hmm. um, fits really well with the narrative that came from the Bloomberg article a few months ago about about Project Titan being in the middle of a shakeup and a reset. So yeah. anyway, um, so that's one of, that's easily the most notable departure. A few, a couple of uh, uh, people from the Apple design team left. Uh, Matt Casebolt, um, his his departure got announced around the same time as Chris Latner's. Um, he's also going to Tesla, um, funnily enough, to design door latches and things like that, which I'm probably the thousandth person to point out the irony with a name like Casebolt and you're designing door latches. So anyway, um, he he at Apple um, actually led the team that for the MacBook Pro with touch bar design. Um, he also led the Mac Pro and the MacBook Air, a couple of early versions of the MacBook Air. Um, a- another designer that left last year um, was a guy named Daniel Coster. Um, he had worked, he'd been at Apple on the design team since 1999, had even worked on the original iMac, the iPhone 4, uh, more recently the iPad Pro keyboard. Um, Daniel Coster left a GoPro last year when he left. Um, uh, you know, is these departures, the design ones are notable because the design team at Apple is famously small. It's very close knit and remarkably stable. In fact, the last time I could find a design team departure at Apple was Shin Nishibori, who left for health reasons back in 2012. Um, and this was around the same time as the as the Samsung lawsuit. And in fact, they had asked Nishibori to testify in that lawsuit, but uh, but didn't for health reasons. Um so this design team is really, really stable, and so anybody leaving that team is notable. Um, Coster, though, uh, for his part, said he laughed. He, sorry, he left um, primarily for a lifestyle change. He said GoPro is interesting. He's decided to work there, but he also wanted to be able to spend more time with family. Uh, it, that's a cliche, but um, um, if, you know as to why people change jobs or leave, um, but. Uh, from what I read, it came across differently than, than the normal cliche. It seemed pretty sincere. And obviously being on the design team at Apple, I think, is very demanding. Um, Casebolt, for his part, he was probably recruited by Doug Field, um, uh, who is another former Apple guy. Um, he was the VP of Mac product design and development and then left for Tesla a couple years ago um, because he'll be work- Casebolt will be working with Doug Field. Um, PR and communications has lost a couple people recently. Um, uh, one again to Tesla, Sarah O'Brien. Um, she had been in charge of communications for the iPhone and watch products. Um, she left for Tesla to essentially run their communications team. Um, Musa Tariq is another recent departure. Um, he had done, um, uh, digital marketing and specifically retail marketing. He had been, before Apple, he had been at Nike and then before that at Burberry and had been probably brought into Apple by Angela Ahrens when she came to take over retail there. Um, anyway, Musa Tariq has left Apple for uh, for Ford, where he's their new chief brand officer. 
Um, so those are the notable ones in PR and communications. And then finally, um, the last one I want to reference isn't so much to go into specific names. I'll mention one or two, I guess. But um, but there's an article uh, on Medium uh, by o uh, OMD is is the is the name of it. Um, uh, uh, his name the 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 writer. I don't know his last name. He goes by Dan M on on Medium. I should know his last name. But uh, anyway, he has some great insightful articles he puts out on Medium and. Uh, wrote one about Apple's privacy stance and the consequences of it. He, he kind of dug into the first thing he talked about was talent, um, talent retention and how much that has been a cost, how Apple's privacy stances impose a cost that way. And, and talent retention, and he, he even listed things that aren't directly related to privacy issues, but he, he notes that Apple has lost people in AI, in health, um, in voice, in music, in search. And these are all areas where um, Apple has lost people. It, an example of that is is uh, Yoki Matsuoka, who had been hired to Apple from Nest, and then eight months later, nine months later, is now going back to Nest. Um, and uh, I, I think there's an important point, although this isn't the case with uh, Yoki Matsuoka, but um, what's most notable about the list from the OMD article is that all of these involve departures of acquired talent. Um, and uh, acquired talent behaves differently in the long run inside any company. Um, departures of acquired talent, where you acquire the company and bring in employees with you, like founders, for example, um, departures in that space are actually really common. Uh, it has a lot to do with the fact that working in a new company brings all kinds of changes you may not like. And so your company got acquired, so that means you now work for the acquiring company. But that can involve all kinds of different things about lifestyle, about working environment, even the commute changes in a way that can make people say, I don't want to work there anymore. Um, so I think that's an important perspective to keep on that list. But there have been a lot of departures there. So anyway, that's a rundown of the most notable departures from the recent past. Great. So Apple's a big company. I think last time they reported numbers, they had 116,000 employees. Um, you know, a company of that size, you're going to have a certain number of people leaving almost every day, I guess. Um, and certainly, you know, on, on, on a regular basis, people will be coming and going in various roles, even if the company isn't, you know, expanding that much from a total employee perspective. So I guess, how do we put this all in context? How do we know whether, you know, the current level of departures is kind of unusual or whether it's just kind of par for the course in a company Apple size? Yeah, so if these were symptomatic departures, they would be symptoms of underlying things that make Apple a place where talented people don't want to work. Um, I've come up with a list of four things. I don't think it's exhaustive, but I think they're probably, they're definitely in the most important reasons why a person might leave. Um, number one is it's a bad work environment, maybe caused by personality conflict or other issues that just make it not pleasant to work there. Number two would be that the work isn't necessarily interesting compared to other places where you might go to work. Um, number three would be bad pay, right? The compensation isn't where it needs to be. And four would be no advancement opportunities, meaning you don't get to move up in a way that's meaningful to you. I think this is an interesting one that we'll get to in a, in a minute um, uh, because a lot of the departures, if you'll notice, are not executive level departures that are hitting the news. Um, but let's start with number one, so the bad recent environment. You know, the truth is, besides a recent Bloomberg article piece about conflict within the Mac team, um, if anything, the environment at Apple has improved. 
Uh, Tim Cook is very famous about not being big on conflict. He doesn't like it um, and will make management choices to reduce it. Um, this is a lot of the reason, for example, he ousted Scott Forstall years, you know, uh, a few years ago. Um, no company is immune to conflict, obviously, but with jobs gone, Apple isn't is isn't a place anymore where you are where where you might get fired in the elevator <laughs> right? right i mean like like that, that that's gone away that's not gotten worse and uh and, and the truth is apple has a reputation of being a place where people are generally nice um apple's ranked highly by glassdoor and other companies you know so when anonymous employees rank their experience at apple it gets well evaluated in terms of work environment Cook in particular is really well liked. He has a 94% approval rating of all the people on Glassdoor that work at Apple who've evaluated him. And, and so I so I don't think there are symptoms of a of a corrosive work environment at Apple that are that are could explain these departures. Um, the 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 idea of Apple having interesting work to keep its people engaged is is I think actually the biggest question that's that's tied to all of this, you know, concern about these departures. But the problem is it's hard to find good evidence as to that being the problem. You know, um, because Apple's very secret and they're not telling us what they're working on. As a big company, it seems likely that there'll be some projects not going well, like the Mac team and that, that was featured in that Bloomberg article. And then there are going to be other projects that are going great that we know nothing about yet. Um, you know, these won't be in the press uh, any more than, um, than, you know, as rumors. Um, and so we're not going to know very much what's going on there. I, there are a couple exceptions. Um, and that's just what we know from recent performance. AI is definitely one of those areas that we can know something about in terms of, you know, the, the, the quality of the work and the engagement of the work that people are being hired to do there. Um, you know, AI is, has a reputation of struggling at Apple because of two things, primarily access to private information so that they have the data sets necessary to do the work that they do in AI, but then also the ability for Apple AI researchers to publish their research uh, in journals and, and, and other outlets. And that second one has recently changed, and Apple has opened the door on that. Um, Semi-design uh, on the other hand, you know, there's a bunch of stuff going on behind closed doors that we don't know there with semiconductor design, but we can have confidence that that one's doing great because they've been hitting it out of the park. You know, on a pretty consistent basis, they even got a cover story in Business Week last year because the, the semiconductor design team at Apple is so impressive. And so, you know, absent those sorts of examples, the truth is we just don't know what's going on. And, and you know, whether or not they're exciting, you know, things going on in developer tools that would make Chris Latner want to stay. The truth is he said that there were. And, and in, his, in his communication with uh, Mac Rumors, he essentially said that he could imagine staying at Apple for years to come. But this was different in a way that he wasn't getting at Apple. So, so I don't know. I, I, you know. I guess we'll visit number two again in a minute. Um, number three about compensation. Apple is known for being competitive, but not generous in its compensation. It pays, you know, about the average, some cases slightly above average, but, but, uh, Apple usually doesn't draw talent by being the biggest, that, you know, the, the most generous employer in compensation. Um, what's interesting though, to put it in context is all of the departures we've talked about probably had some sort of stock-based compensation that would make them want to stay. And the truth is Apple stock has not been the darling that it used to be, right? I mean, the, its prospects for growth are cloudy right now. 
and that's a huge chunk of your compensation if you're in senior management. And, and I could see that actually being a, a, a thing that would tempt, that would make it easier for other companies with a, with a more optimistic growth trajectory, um, having a persuasive case to draw people away. I mean, that's definitely the case with Tesla. Tesla, for example, you know, has a lot more headroom in terms of its stock performance. Um, it's easy to imagine Tesla stock taking off, uh, you know, in the years to come. And so that would be a factor for the kind of people we're talking about uh, leaving Apple. Uh, in terms of advancement, though, this is an interesting question because Apple actually has a reputation for being terrible at advancement. They sort of have like the average, you know, like workers, engineers, whatever. And then from senior management up, it's apparently really hard to penetrate just by sort of working your way up the chain. Um, that 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 criticism, though, that doesn't really apply to any of the people we've talked about. These people were brought into senior management roles. Um, but what there wasn't for them is executive management advancement opportunities. And that's because Apple's executive team has been super stable lately. And in fact, we'll talk about that idea in a minute. So uh, wrapping it all up on this, I think number two is probably the biggest one we care about, you know, whether or not Apple has interesting work for the people it's hiring. And the reality is we just don't know enough because it's behind the scenes. Um, you know, one would think that a company dominated by engineering and design would be hemorrhaging people if there wasn't interesting work. Um, and that's not happening. There would be a lot more smoke if, the, if this fire was burning at Apple. Um, and so the reality is probably that any of the great stuff going on at Apple is stable and therefore quiet. Um, and we're not hearing about it until you know, stuff gets announced later. Um, the huge exception to all that, obviously, is Project Titan, um, which we mentioned has saw, saw some big cuts and restructuring. But, uh, but again, those weren't voluntary departures, though. Those are people right. getting laid off. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, again, that, that's kind of one way of looking at this question of, um, you know, putting this in context, kind of why would people leave? Is there evidence that, you know, those are reasons why people are leaving today? I guess another way of putting this in context would be to kind of look back at other periods in Apple's history when, you know, people have been leaving maybe in similar numbers and kind of what did we see, you know, about those departures, kind of what evidence do we have that it's either like or not like those previous periods when people have, have left? Can you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that's interesting about Apple is that historically the departures that tended to make the news were almost entirely executive leadership. Um, and that, that really kind of started, so this is post jobs, this is after jobs came back to Apple. Um, you know, that I think the biggest, most notable one from the earliest uh, years of that period was John Rubenstein, who left Apple to run Palm, um, right. first as chief, uh, as, as chairman of the board and then took over as CEO. Um, Tony Fidel was a notable one. Uh, he left Apple, I think, around 2008 or 2009, um, left into retirement, but then started Nest, which got acquired by Google, and then he left Nest. Uh, on the software side, you had a few people. You had Avi Tavanian, um, Bertrand Serlay, uh, both who were sort of wizards in pushing OS X to where it got in, in those days. Um, on the application side, you had Sina Tamadon. All of them sort of left for various reasons to focus on their own projects, but they were all executive level leaders. Um, Scott Forstall famously was forced out um, over the Apple Maps scandal, but also because Tim Cook was now in charge and and there's reasons to think that they didn't get along very well. Um, Ron Johnson left Apple very famously to go run JCPenney and had a very bad go of it there. <laughs> 
um, yeah. which was too bad because he's a really, you know, by all accounts, he's a really great guy. Um, I think one of the more controversial ones historically was Mark Papermaster, who had been hired away from IBM. Um, uh, there were concerns even at the time that they hired him about culture and fit, and that seems to be what sunk him in the end. Uh, it didn't help that he was in charge of I- I- iPod and iPhone at the time of Antennagate right. and that whole mess. And uh, and I think the way that was managed uh, kind of destroyed any confidence Steve Jobs had in him. So he was gone after a really short period of time. Um and then Katie Cotton, who was the famous PR person at Apple for, I think, about 18 years, um, she just retired. I, you know, these are all the most notable departures. They're all executive level. And I think spending a minute to remember all of them kind of illustrates how stable Apple's executive team has been lately. Um, and uh, and there have been a couple other executives that I didn't mention just on the finance side and on the legal side. but. But on the product side, you know, which is what we care about, that's uh, that's kind of what's happened. And now, it, like I said, the the executive team is pretty stable, which is 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 notable because of its stability compared to these years. I think there's a miss. I, I think people misremember um, that that this is that you know the executive team at Apple is the same one that all showed up with Steve Jobs in 1997, and and. And that's not true. I mean, there have been some stalwarts around during all that time. Obviously, Johnny Ive, um, Phil Schiller. Um, but uh, there have also been a lot of changes in major product categories um, where executive leadership has changed. I think what's more interesting is to look historically look back and to put it into context for today is to look back at the non-executive departures and two stand out. Um, one is that when Apple acquired PA Semi, which became the foundation for the, its A-series chips, that acquisition was a huge, huge deal historically for Apple. Um, a bunch of the PA Semi engineers that were brought in with the acquisition left. Um, but yet the reality is is that semi-design has been incredible at Apple, um, absolutely amazing. And so those departures obviously didn't ruin the trajectory of, of Apple's semiconductor design team. Um, but as a counterpoint to that, you know, we can look at the Siri team. Um, Dag Kitlaus and, and others who were brought in with the acquisition of Siri put Apple way ahead, and Siri was a huge, huge advance when it came out, but it hasn't kept its lead. And there are a lot of people who think that's because of these uh, senior um, engineers that, that left. And uh, Dag Kitlaus went on to start another company that's uh, five that got acquired by Samsung. And, and there's a lot of cool stuff there that was acquired. And so, th- you know, we kind of have both sides of that story with those two examples. The point being is we can't know for sure when senior management or senior engineers leave to know what the trajectory is going to be for the product that they're working on. Right. Uh, interesting. Um, one of the themes that came up a lot in your early uh Responses to one of my first questions was Tesla. So, um, you know, Tesla seems to be the destination that many of these people are going to, having left Apple. Am I misreading that? Is that no. is that accurate? And kind of, you know, what do we make of that? Does that is that more significant perhaps than sort of lots of individual departures to different companies? Yeah, absolutely, it is, and, and it's the different. I mean, comparing you know these departures today versus historically at Apple, Tesla is a very big and very different variable today than, than previous years. 
Um, in fact, Bloomberg has written and others have written about this. There's essentially a poaching war that's going on between Apple and Tesla. Elon Musk f famously called Apple the Tesla graveyard. Right. <laughs> right. When they can't, you know, like it's Apple's not hiring the best people. It's where Tesla engineers go to die is apparently at Apple. Mm -hmm. is his point. I, I, that was pretty hyperbolic. But right. But um, there's definitely been more top talent leaving Apple for Tesla than the than the reverse. At least mm -hmm. the kind of talent that's making the news. Um, right. Uh, and it's no surprise. I mean, they they overlap in important ways. They you know rely heavily on engineering talent. Um, they're both seen as cutting edge companies with strong reputations. Um, you know, I, I, there's something to add about this narrative that Tesla's winning the poaching war, which is that Apple is a much, much larger company. Right. Tesla has about 20,000 employees. Apple has about 70,000 non-retail employees. And, 20, and, and so Tesla simply doesn't have as many people for Apple to poach as mm -hmm. App, Apple has for Tesla to poach. And so, right. I mean, if you're looking just at base rates, Tesla should be poaching at a five to one ratio, to, or not quite five to one, about a three to one ratio to Apple, three and a half to one. And that seems to be about what's happening. And so, um, you know, it, anytime I hear stuff like this, I always, my mind always goes to base rates, right? And the base rate would tell you that Tesla should be poaching more Apple people than the inverse. Um, but that said, to be fair to Tesla, they're a rapidly growing company and Apple's growth is stalled. And that goes back to the compensation point I made earlier. If you're coming in as senior management or senior engineering in a tech company, um, like Tesla is, um, or Apple is, you're going to be thinking about the growth of your stock options or share based compensation. And Tesla, the steepest part of Tesla's growth curve is probably ahead of them. And that's not obviously the case for Apple right now. And right. so that would be a big difference maker uh, is that, mm -hmm. you know, you could become a millionaire at Tesla. It's more likely you could become a millionaire at Tesla through your stock compensation than at Apple if you showed up right. today. So Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I think that applies to any smaller company is just that the pyramid is much less flat in a way. You know, there there are Yes, the executive team is probably about the same size, but there are far right. fewer people that could potentially funnel up to that executive team. And the other thing that is that you go from a big company to a small company, you can often jump several levels in the hierarchy. So the guy we talked about earlier, he went from Apple retail marketing to being chief brand officer at Ford. He certainly wasn't that at Apple. Um, right. but and, and Ford isn't necessarily a smaller company, but in terms of um, you know the industry and sort of design and so on, it feels like you know you can... You can make lateral moves out of Apple that actually end up propelling you several layers up in, you know, the hierarchy much closer to um, the top of the organization. I mean, John Rubenstein's another good example of that. You know, he was, you know, a, an important executive at Apple, but went to being chairman and eventually CEO at Palm. You know, and right. so that's the other attraction is you can you can move into a, directly into another role where you're much higher up in the pecking order, which presumably is often attractive for people as well. Yeah, and that again goes to you know speaks to the importance of Apple's executive team being relatively stable lately. Mm -hmm. So because yeah, those opportunities absolutely. aren't there. Yeah. So any last thoughts about all this? You've talked us through a lot of different ways of thinking about this, and it's been great. But any kind of last thoughts? You know, kind of having gone through this exercise by way of kind of conclusions or anything else about this question that we're asking? Yeah, I, I think you know there are other explanations to these departures than Apple being in big trouble. Um, one, Apple is a bigger company than it's ever been. And that means there are naturally going to be more departures. And mm -hmm. so there's going to be more stuff to talk about in the news. Um, secondly, Apple is more generous with the spotlight 
on like putting the spotlight on their employees than they ever were before. Under Steve mm -hmm. Jobs, it was hard to get to know Apple employees very well. You know, with the exception of Phil Schiller and a tiny handful of others, that they didn't. He didn't share the stage a lot because he liked being the the voice of Apple. Um, and uh, now that there's more spotlight on employees, and Apple seems to be loosening up a little bit about the way media outlets have access to their employees through interviews or other things, it's natural that we'll know more about them, and then those departures become more notable. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think, for example, when the PA semi uh, acquisition happened and some engineers left years later, I think we would have heard a lot more about it back then um, if it was the same environment we have today. Because mm -hmm. back then when it happened, it hit some trade publications, right? I mean, it, it, right. Was, it, it was notable in the semiconductor press, which isn't exactly mm -hmm. a huge readership. Right. Whereas I think the same, same environment today, we probably would have known their names more. We would have known more about them. So... Mm -hmm. I think the last thing is, it, it, there's there are all the there are all sorts of signs still that Apple's a very desirable place to work. Um, the key question, obviously, is whether or not it's still a place for top talent. Mm -hmm. um, they just got a hire today. They hired the the founder of uh, Dropcam, which was acquired by Nest slash Google. Um, I should say Alphabet, and uh, and I mean that's a big acquisition, and uh, he's a talented guy, and and and. The, the thing is, though, that fits the narrative that Apple is a place where top people go. And so it won't resonate the same way as Chris Latner leaving Apple. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, but the reality, the problem, though, is without getting into specific businesses or technologies at Apple, you can't answer the, the, the question we asked at the top, is Apple in trouble? You can't answer that correctly because it matters what you're talking about. In AI, I would say, yeah, Apple's kind of in trouble. At least there are plenty of signs, and there's, you know, there's also signs that they're in a turnaround, but a turnaround implies that things haven't been going well for Apple mm -hmm. when it comes to AI and hiring right. top people. But if you look at hardware engineering and design, you know, there's nobody better than Apple at this. Like, there mm -hmm. are companies on par, but nobody that hands down beats Apple every time. Right. And so... You know that that reputation tells you, yeah, there's still a, it's still a place for top talent to go. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thanks, Aaron, for for talking us through all of that. Um, we'll move on to our third segment, and we'll just talk briefly about each of these four companies. We'll just kind of give a few thoughts each and move through them pretty rapidly. And we'll talk about Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter as far as what we're expecting to see from earnings. And so, I'll kick things off with Amazon. I think you know the big trends with Amazon. Obviously, AWS is a massive thing for them. Uh, you know, the cloud business has been a, a great source of new profits and revenue growth for them. But it's easy to kind of forget that the e-commerce business has been going gangbusters too. And, you know, they've already released several press releases in the new year, hinting in the usual Amazonian style at big growth year on year without providing any actual numbers. But, you know, I think they probably had a really big fourth quarter from a sales perspective. The question with Amazon is always how much of that profit that comes from that did they just plow right back into investing in the business and there's a story just today about them investing in uh, ocean shipping <laughs> so you know they're always finding new new places to invest some of that money but so we don't know what the profit picture will look like and their guidance was ridiculously broad after the last earnings call but uh you know I, i'm expecting big things from them aaron any thoughts on amazon from you no, I think the question with them is the same. It's always been how much profit are they going to capture and reinvest and how much are they going to, you know, announce? Yeah. So, because that's always, it, you know, they've done that in big swings and we there's not a stable Very unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, well, let's talk about Apple quickly. We've obviously been talking through Apple quite a bit already here. I think, you know, one of the things I'm most curious about is, you know, does the iPhone get back to growth again? Right. I certainly hinted that that would be the case on the previous earnings call. So it's the single biggest question, I think. Very interesting to see what happens to iPad revenues. Those have kind of gone up briefly in the summer, dipped again in Q3, you know, could have had a strong Q4. Uh, the Apple Watch is another big one to watch for um, just because, you know, they... they launched new versions right towards the end of the year. The, the lowest price points dropped quite a bit. There were quite a few sort of sales and so on going on as well. Um, so it'd be interesting to see kind of how those have sold. And then presumably we'll see a Mac rebound off the back of the new MacBook Pros as well. But anything else that you're looking for there, Aaron? No, I think that pretty much covers the list. Um, you know, the, the iPhone thing, I think is going to be a slow return to growth. I don't think you're going to see much of a bump. And everybody seems to be predicting a super cycle with the mm -hmm. next iPhone. And right. so that that feeling is going to spill over even into consumer behavior if it if it if it reaches narrative status that the iPhone right. is next. So Yeah, absolutely. Um, Facebook's the next one on our list. Um, you know, I think they've suggested in the last several quarters that they're going to, their ad load is saturating. Um, news just came out today that they're going to start putting what are effectively banner ads in the messenger product at least in the small scale testing. So some evidence that they're stretching to find new places to put ads so that they can continue their ad growth. So we may see some kind of a slowdown there. Certainly we'll see more guidance on that point from them as well. Um, obviously there's ongoing curiosity about how Instagram's performing from a monetization perspective. There's really no transparency about that at all at this point at Facebook. So that's a big thing that I'll be looking forward to. I'm, I'm sure people will be pushing for information about that. And live video is another one, both with them and with Twitter, which we'll talk about in a second, where they've been investing a lot in it, and it's not really clear that that's paying off yet. Yeah, I think live video is a big question um, because it's not as clear how they monetize that compared to the other, um, their, you know, the other places where they're putting advertising. Um, the, the reality is, is any of the big sort of interesting stuff with Facebook is going to be coming more in the spring when they do their developer conference and everything else, and so... Um, yeah, this is not going to be a, a, a really out of the ordinary quarter by any means. Right. And then just wrapping up with Twitter, I mean, I mentioned live video just now. They've been making massive investments of that in terms of signing deals and so on. What isn't clear is quite what revenue that will actually deliver for them. Um, a lot of that video that they're licensing in uh, from outside uh, is existing video that already has whatever ads, ad slots may exist filled by other parties, so relatively few add opportunities for, for Twitter to sell, um, you know, and then it comes back to growth, you know, user growth. And then if there isn't user growth and engagement growth, some demonstration that users are engaging more um, and that that in turn is going to drive revenue per user. You know, this year really is the year where Jack Dorsey's either got to uh, demonstrate that he can turn the company around or hand over the reins to somebody else. There's going to be a lot of pressure on him throughout the year, I think, starting with this quarter's results in terms of demonstrating that he has the right vision for the company, that he really can turn it around. I think that's exactly right. I, I We talked about this in our in our predictions. I think this is a big, this is the big year for Twitter with some sort of big change. And I think it's going to be driven largely by financial performance. And uh, I, I don't know, can you call it a honeymoon if this is the second time around? But, <laughs> you know, being a relatively new CEO. Second honeymoon, there. maybe. Yeah. Right, yeah. But I, I think that's over whatever we call right. that period and and right. that's going to be that's going to be a hot seat to be in yeah absolutely okay well that wraps up our very brief earnings preview uh, we'll probably be talking more about the actual earnings results over the next couple of weeks on on the episodes 
to come. Um, we'll wrap up as usual with our weekly pick, and it's my turn to recommend it, something this time around. I'm going to recommend a book. This is the second uh, car-related book that I've recommended in, in the last couple of months. I've just finished today listening to this one through Audible. Uh, it's available, obviously, on Kindle and, and other places as well. Uh, the title of the book is Go Like Hell, and the author is A.J. Bame. That's uh, B-A-I-M-E. And it's about the battle between Ford and Ferrari in the 60s around race cars, essentially. So Ford approached Ferrari, which indicated it might be up for sale uh, with a view to an acquisition. It seemed later that Ferrari was basically just trying to get good PR out of it. And Ford responded very badly. And Henry Ford II, who was in charge of Ford at the time, basically decided the only way to respond to this was to crush Ferrari on the race course, where um, Ford really hadn't been a presence, especially you know outside of the sort of US NASCAR racing. And so made a massive investment in um, the Le Mans 24-hour race and other races like it, and uh, won't spoil the story for you. But it's a it's a very interesting story about the rivalry between these companies and kind of the cultures of the respective companies as well. So again, the title of the book is Go Like Hell. Uh, AJ Bame is the author. Very interesting story. I will say the writing isn't the best. It's a, it's a bit heavy on the the uh, descriptive stuff, a um, little over the top, a little cliched in a couple of places. But the the story itself is worth slogging through that for. Uh, so we'll link to that. We'll link to some other stuff that we've mentioned during the episode today too on the website at podcast.beyonddevices. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it always. And we hope to be with you again next week. Thanks. <laughs>